This week on The Futurists, David Matten. I think that these will be hugely powerful tools that amplify the creativity of, of humans. I don't think they're set to replace human creativity. Well, welcome back to The Futurists. I'm Rob Terzik, your host. And this week, my co-host is not available. He's traveling in the Middle East on his way to Asia. So Globe Traveler Brett King won't be able to join us, but we do have an excellent guest, Dave Matten. I'm going to introduce him shortly. But first, the news from the future. The news from the future continues to percolate. A couple of stories that we've covered previously just keep staying in the news. That includes Elon Musk, who's showing us definitely how not to do an acquisition uh, as he continues to flail away, lately posting provocative stuff that's a uh, link bait that's designed to attract people on the right wing of the spectrum, but it could very well alienate advertisers and users across the spectrum. In other news, uh, we've covered the story of FTX and the meltdown there uh, recently. And uh, the U.S. Department of Justice is now in the process of preparing a fraud case against Sam Bakeman Freed and other people who were involved in that spectacular crypto flameout. Uh, in particular, they're investigating the transfer of hundreds of millions of dollars to bank accounts in the Bahamas just before the collapse of that exchange. Recently, uh, the, the former CEO of the related firm Alameda Research. Her name is Carolyn Ellison, and she was spotted in a coffee shop in Lower Manhattan near the offices of the federal prosecutors who are conducting that investigation, which led to speculation that she may be cooperating in that investigation. We'll keep covering that story because it portends so much for the burgeoning crypto uh, cryptocurrency field and the related Web3 field. Another big story from the U.S. government is that the FTC has now filed antitrust action to break up Microsoft's looming acquisition of Activision Blizzard. If this were to pass, this would be the world's largest or the history's largest acquisition in the gaming industry, um, almost $70 billion of value at stake. Uh, but the FTC is weighing in under its vigorous new leadership from Lena Khan. Uh, there's a lot at stick here for the FTC because they've made a lot of sounds about breaking up big tech. And this is uh, the opportunity for the FTC to prove their mettle. On the other hand, it's not so clear that this case is going to prevail because Microsoft makes a very good point. They're not the largest player in the gaming space by far. Tencent and Sony are much bigger. And of course, Sony is cheering from the sidelines because they'd love to see Microsoft stopped. This isn't so much about game consoles. Um, Microsoft's Xbox is not the dominant console. This is more about the future of gaming. Cloud gaming has been a topic that's been bumping around for quite some time. And in this space, Microsoft is a clear leader because their Xbox Game Pass has far more subscribers, far more gamers subscribe to that than other gamers. So there is a, uh, there's a real matter at stake here in the future, which is about subscription gaming. And the concern of the FTC is that Microsoft will withhold content from other platforms. Of course, they swear they won't do that. And so we'll have to wait and see what happens with that case as it merges its way through the legal system. Final news piece here is about ChatGPT, which has really captured a lot of people's imagination. It's one of the fastest growing applications in history, gaining 1 million users in less than one week. Now, of course, it's also racked up staggering compute costs. The speculation this week is that somehow ChatGPT or chatbots could replace search, which sounds intriguing. You know, instead of getting a, a page full of links that you can then go do the hard work of investigating whether or not they're valid search results, you could just have a conversation with a robot 
That's the idea. However, chatbots are notorious for generating false, misleading, and sometimes hateful responses. So it's entirely unclear at this stage whether that will ever work. And along that line, let me introduce our guest. Well, David, welcome. David is the, the founder of New World Same Humans, which is a newsletter I've been enjoying so very much. And he was introduced to us by a previous guest, Zoe Rao. David, welcome to the show. Robert, hello. Thank you so much for having me on. Happy to have you here. So you've written quite a lot in your newsletter, the the newsletter New World Same Humans, which I highly recommend. Uh, you've written about these chatbots in the past and uh, and this movement towards you know chat navigation or chat search or something along that line. But in your perspective, judging from the newsletter, this is not going to be a smooth path. No, I don't. I really don't think it is going to be a smooth path, and I don't really think anyone can fully understand the path that lies ahead. I mean, I've been writing about, um, of course, we've all been writing and thinking about artificial intelligence, machine intelligence, you know, neural networks for years. And I've been thinking about the implications of those for years, um, speaking for years about a trend that I call virtual companions, which is about the emergence of AI-fueled agents that we can relate to on sort of a deeper emotional level. And, you know, when I was talking about that in sort of 2012, 2013, you know, it, it was, we were in a world of sort of Siri and Alexa uh, and that kind of conversational agent. They, they just weren't very good. Now we're seeing with GPT-3 and large language models, the emergence of AIs that can output language that really is it's impossible to tell that it's not a human being or often impossible to tell it's not a human being. There's implications there for billions of sort of end users of consumers in terms of their relationship with these entities. And then there's vast implications across industries, across logistics and supply chains and information flows. I, I think we're at the beginning of a decade-long wave of, of innovation around generative AI and transformer models. Uh, and it's going to be thrilling to watch, exciting to watch, and it will take us down some, you know, some unexpected paths. And of course, there are going to be difficulties. I mean, yeah. there's no getting around that. And we're um, at the very early stage. To, to navigate them. Yeah. And we're at a very, very early stage still. Uh, you know, although AI research in AI has been, been conducted for 50 years, and there have been tremendous uh, results and some great progress in the past 10, particularly since 2015. Um, we're still at an early stage and these systems are still immature. I mean, the example of, of, of ChatGPT is, yes, it generates very, very good grammatical English and very well-constructed thoughts, but the content within it sometimes is greatly made up. It's fake. It's it's misleading. It can be confusing. You know, recently, um, recently the, the um, Stack Overflow, which is a site for where software developers share tips and code and so forth, they banned ChatGPT because it has it posts so many misleading comments that they've asked people not to share stuff that was generated by it. Right. Yeah. I mean, and that that's one example of uh, of, of 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 one of the the challenges here is exactly that. I mean, this is a machine that produces this incredible simulation of meaning, but mm. it 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 doesn't have any. Uh, so to speak, a sort of external context to check against. It's just immersed in this huge data set and trained on this vast data set of text. And it's just sort of drawing on that and using incredibly complex statistics to kind of mash it up and spit it back out. And so it sounds extremely convincing and it yeah. sounds extremely confident and human-like, but is often talking 
nonsense. Yeah. Uh, and we can't. Very plausible can't. sounding nonsense. Yeah, like exactly. Very, very persuasive the, and convincing, but. Right, which is the problem. It sounds very persuasive, but no. I mean, no one at the moment can can rely on chat GPT to give it, give us sort of um, answers to important factual questions, because often, I mean, I, I think it, it pretty often gets simple maths wrong. Yeah. You know, so, so yes. it doesn't have an understanding of what this is what's so confusing to people who are using, let's say, you know, any of these generative systems, whether it's chat GPT or let's say, you know, stable diffusion or mid journey to generate images. We think the machine knows what it's doing because it's rendering such a beautiful image or it's rendering such, you know, eloquent text. But in fact, the machine has no understanding whatsoever of what it's generating. And it's up to us to use human discernment to determine whether those results are valid or not. I think many people are falling prey to that. You certainly see that with uh, with the imagery. Um, you know, people are being persuaded that this is the future of image generation and that there's jobs at stake and so forth. Uh, I tend to see these more as a tool. And I certainly see a role for humans, at least in the foreseeable future, in guiding this. And I think uh, Google doesn't need to worry about their advertising revenue stream. Still, you know, advertising around search is still about 80% of Google's business model. So that's very important for them. But I don't think it's under any imminent threat right now from OpenAI. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that. I think that these will be hugely powerful tools that amplify the creativity of of humans. I don't think they're set to replace human creativity. In fact, it it requires a, a a high degree of creative skill to use these tools effectively. If you want to generate compelling sort of narrative from GPT-3, or you want to generate truly compelling, unexpected, you know, unusual images from, for example, stable diffusion. That requires human creativity in in the prompts you feed, in the in the iteration you go through. So, in fact, you know everyone will have these technologies that will be commoditized. It will make truly creative people even more valuable, because what truly creative people will be able to do with these tools will be astounding. So, creative people needn't worry that human creativity or anything like that is about to become irrelevant. In fact, it's about to become even more valuable than it was before. It will bring change to, you know, I mean, I think illustrators, that job market uh, and that industry is go is going to change. Um, but it will change in interesting ways. It's not just going to erase the role of humans in illustration. Certainly it's not. It's definitely true. Those who know how to do prompt craft, people who've you know, practiced uh, and studied different approaches to writing their prompts, they're able to generate much better images and a, and a much broader range of genres. Uh, so it's been quite impressive to watch the result. The other thing that's blown my mind, though, is in the last six months, you can visibly see the progress. You can visibly see these systems improving. Um, back in May, I don't think that stable diffusion was that, um, actually, I don't know if that was available then, but Dolly 2 was not that impressive last spring. Uh, the results were mixed and because it, it hadn't been trained as much. Now with millions of users uh, you know, typing in millions of commands, these systems have gotten way better. And you can start to see the progress on a, on a visible basis every week. Um, and that that is really quite extraordinary. Of course, that's just a visual marker for progress that's happening across, across the board. So there's a lot of invisible AI and software automation that we cannot see. And that's improving at a similar clip, I would imagine. Yeah, the roller coaster we've been on in 2022, and I've, this is why I've written about it so uh, obsessively in the newsletter. The roller coaster has been incredible, and if you look across the year and the release of Stable Diffusion just this week or last week, I should say, sorry, the 
the release of Stable Diffusion 2.0, which is a step change in the quality of the images. And then you had the, the new GPT-3 model, and then you had ChatGPT in the same week. I mean, we, we've seen an incredible, and then you've seen text to image, but also this year text to video. Um, yes, that's true. I mean, yeah, just incredible advances that you have to be sort of made of stone to not be excited by yeah. in a single year. And it's going to be a thrilling ride across the next few years as these technologies continue to advance. And we we attempt to figure out the implications and, and the use cases. And it's apparent that Google is quietly working on these technologies as well. They're maybe not quite as visible as OpenAI. Um, there's a lot of reasons why OpenAI needs the publicity. They need the awareness and the users and the ability to train their system. But it appears that Google is working on similar technologies and they'll probably integrate them into search at some point. They have made some pretty significant changes to Google search results this year to appeal to the TikTok generation. You know, they're starting to make those, those results much more visual. You wrote recently about um, another AI system that, that sort of went sideways. It was not ready for prime time. And this is one from Meta uh, called Galactica. Uh, that was actually a good, that was a very good piece in your newsletter. I enjoyed the heck out of it. Um, so tell me a little bit about Galactica and what went wrong. Thanks. Yeah. And Galactica is a, is a perfect example of, of, you know, one of our avenues into this conversation, which is don't rely on these large language models for factual information and, and, uh, and objective kind of correlation with what is true out there in the world. Galactica is uh, was, I should say, a tool released by Meta, founded on a large language model, so on the kind of AI that fuels GPT-3, fine-tuned on a huge amount of um, published science, so, so publicly available scientific research. And Meta released it with great fanfare as you know, this is a hugely powerful tool. This is the future of scientific research. Step to Galactica, ask Galactica a question about science, and it will, it will, you know, inform you of the truth founded in this fine-tuning we've done on all this published science. And this can help revolutionize the future of science and democratize access to scientific knowledge and all of that. Now, look, it's a it's a really interesting experiment, and I can't understand why Meta didn't position it as such, because within 24 to 48 hours of release, extremely predictably, people had stepped to Galactica, asked it questions, and got completely nonsense answers, and sometimes fairly toxic answers, you know, that contained really awful racism and sexism and so on, and Meta promptly pulled the tool. And that was the history of Galactica. You know, it lasted about 48 hours. Yeah. So a really puzzling set of decisions from Meta around making this publicly available so soon and, and also releasing it in the way they did with such fanfare and such confidence rather than positioning it as an extremely interesting experiment with all the usual caveats around, you know, it's unstable right now. It's not always going to be accurate. It's going to, it's going to display biases and so on. So I think we've all took, uh, you know, learnings from that. I'm sure that I, I don't think that Meta will make the same mistake again, or at least you'd hope they they don't. Uh, and we'll see. I'm sure the track sure record we'll isn't that great. <laughs> the track record this year for Meta has not been great. You know, they need a win, and I suppose there was a lot of uh, pressure to to put out a big press release and make a big announcement. But boy, did that backfire. The funny thing is that that's almost word for word. You could have used the same description to talk about 
Tray, which was Microsoft's uh, attempt to do a smart chatbot uh, almost a decade ago. And the same exact result, huge fanfare, lots of boasting, bragging and so forth. And then all of a sudden we turn the thing just turns out to be spewing hate speech and toxic insults and so forth. Uh, and quickly, you know, pulled off the market for the same same exact reason. doesn't mean these systems won't work. It's just probably a good idea not to hype them so much at the release. Right, right, right. I mean, I, it, I said in the newsletter, you know, oh, there's a there's a few things to say here. I mean, people people get understandably very het up about the biases these AIs, these transformer models, these large language models display. They display them simply because they're trained on vast amounts of human culture, his, and sadly, historically, biases, racism, sexism, and so yeah. on is instantiated in that culture. So it finds its way into these. Um, large language models, and then they output it. So they're really only acting as a mirror of us and ourselves and our history. And we need to contend with that if we're to realize the full, you know, amazing power of these tools. And I hope we can all come together as a culture and do that in a in a civilized way. And it's going to mean that we have to be exposed to some toxic speech in order to better understand these tools and how we and and how we ameliorate that effect that they produce but we do that by positioning these things as an experiment releasing them in a controlled way to users who agree to be exposed to that kind of speech and flag it up and then we think about how we deal with it and so on not by just putting it on 100% full scale public release as the next big revolutionary scientific mm -hmm. tool it wasn't ready for that and and the idea that you know big science is almost a uh, religion. You know, you walk into the church of big science, and everything will be solved, everything will be taken care of, and it'll be a bright, brilliant future. That's simply unrealistic. That vision has never been true. It's a utopian vision that has never been paid off. The reality is, it's a bumpy ride, and it's an iterative process, and we continue to learn, and things break, and we'll fix them, and we'll gradually make progress. But but it'll take some time. Um, and I think you mentioned that in your newsletter, uh, you you mentioned the comments from Yan LeCun, the scientist who built Galactica, uh, and he underscored that point. He's like, look, it's a mirror. It's it's a reflection of us. So the the hateful speech, the hateful attitudes, the toxic uh, you know, aspect of this chatbot, well, that's just a reflection of human society. This idea, this idea, this idea of finding the humanism in the technology is what's at the heart of your inquiry in your newsletter. Tell us a little bit about how you came to start the newsletter, the newsletter, New World, Same Humans. Yes. So um, my background is I was head of research and analysis, essentially head of the research side of the business at one of the leading independent consumer trend firms. So this was a firm tracking trends in consumer behavior and informing clients, pretty much every big brand, every big corporation under the sun as to what those trends were. Um, I'm now completely independent, and the heart of what I do is this newsletter, New World, Same Humans. Uh, and it's really founded in the underpinning thought, just as the name suggests, is, is this collision between a changing world and fundamental human needs. Really underpinning everything I do is this idea that when a changing world, often that means emerging technologies, 
unlock new ways to serve fundamental human needs, things like value, security, status, that's when you see new human behaviors or mindsets or expectations emerging at scale. So I write the newsletter, I take a very wide ranging view of a changing world and the forces reshaping our shared future and what that means for businesses, but what also that means for culture and for our lives uh, in the decades ahead. That keeps me pretty busy. And I'm also now in the process of founding a boutique trends and foresight agency. And we're doing some great work for clients, you know, helping, helping bring that big picture thinking about a changing world in the 2020s to clients, but also thinking about, you know, doing more to think about what does it mean for them? What are the implications for them and how should they respond? One of the things I like about the newsletter, uh, which, which someone forwarded to me, people send me things all the time now because they, they know that I'm interested in these subjects. And so I'm getting great suggestions from the audience here for the podcast. And um, so someone forwarded to me. What I liked about it, what stood out to me about, about New World Same Humans is that you cover the news, you cover the topics, just as we did in the beginning of the show, but you, af- you add your take, your opinion. And this is really quite interesting because it's not just a news service. There's plenty of those. In fact, in a way, we're kind of inundated with uh, news that's ripped out of context. It's a series of headlines that creates a certain kind of confusion. What people are really looking for is context. And you provide that and you provide that through uh, a humanistic lens, which I find really refreshing because here in California, we're awash in technology and, you know, the, the, this sort of uh, this uh, the rapture of technology here, you know, the, the church of the singularity and so forth. And so I think it's kind of refreshing um, to ground the tech news in a perspective that's about people. And as you say in the name, you know, same humans. Like we have, a, we, we adapt slowly. Technology changes fast, but humans don't change quite as quickly. Right, yeah. And that 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 really is the underpinning philosophy behind the work I do to understand yeah. our shared future and what it means for all of us. And it underpins the newsletter too. I, I mean, yeah. How do you do I, that? Well, how do you keep track of all those sources? Like, like, where are you finding this information? How do you compile it each week? Yeah, so... The methodology really is is very simple. It's about looking out to the world in this structured way, bringing that lens of the collision between a changing world, often new technologies, and fundamental human needs, and looking for those collisions. Mm. And really the best way to do that, or the way I do it, is to look out to the world of innovation in a structured way, to bring that framework to the world of innovation. So I'm looking really, for new products, new services, new campaigns, new apps, new digital products, new chatbots, like whatever it is. And I'm looking for particularly those innovations that are leveraging some emerging technology, something new to serve an age-old fundamental need in a new way. Because when an, when an emerging technology taps into one of these age-old eternal shared needs in a new way, that's when you see the emergence of new human behaviors and mindsets and expectations, the emergence of new trends, as I would define them. That word is often ambiguous. I'm talking about trends in human behavior, essentially. That's when you see new human behaviors and mindsets at scale. Um, In practice, that just means I am like insanely immersed in just like hundreds or thousands of sources using tools to filter, you know, intelligently and just constantly, constantly, constantly reading 
looking out to the world of innovation for those signals and then bringing that framework to them. And like you say, you know, the, with the newsletter, I give my own take, I give my own view. And it's really the same trick, so to speak, every time. It's 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 okay. Here's this big story in the world we all we all have seen, or sometimes it's quite an obscure story. Here's this new research paper or this new technology or this new this new scientific breakthrough. Let's look at that through the lens of fundamental human needs. Fundamental human needs, our eternal shared nature becomes the anchor that helps us to make sense of what is apparently chaos out there. Out there is very fast changing, very fluid, very chaotic. If you see that out there through the lens of fundamental human needs that don't change, that can become an anchor that helps you look to the outside world in a structured way and start to make sense of it, see patterns, see directions of travel in all that apparent chaos. That is what I'm doing. It's totally qualitative. And I am experimenting now with ways to bring quantification, to bring this incredible world of data and AI AI's ability to crunch and see patterns in that data that we can't, to marry that with the kind of qualitative trend thinking I do, that is an extremely exciting next step. If you want to kind of talk futurist inside, like shop talk, that is an extremely interesting next step for the kind of work I do. Well, let's hang on. What I do day to day is totally qualitative. Okay, let's hang on to that because we do have to go to our break here. But before we do that, let me ask you a couple of quick questions to help our audience get familiar with you. Um, David, tell me about a science fiction story or film or TV show that inspired you. The first uh, science fiction that you were exposed to that inspired you. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first true science fiction that I was exposed to and loved as a as a child was The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm which might be an unexpected answer because it's not that kind of hard tech, hard boiled science fiction um, that, you know, you might associate with futurists or with futurism. And I have a degree of discomfort with that word and we can talk about that, but it brings a very human perspective. So it perhaps informs the perspective I take because it brings a very, dare I say, it, sort of English um, kind of anticlimactic, almost prosaic human cozy approach to to space and space travel and high technology and relentlessly reminds you in a in a funny way in a humorous way that you know yes you can have all this technology you can be whizzing through space you can be doing all these incredible things but these are still people they're still flawed fragile sort of funny ridiculous people so i suppose that perhaps has helped inform the perspective i take on uh-huh. everything we're uh-huh. seeing now you know, if if uh, science fiction doesn't have that human element, it cannot be funny. There's no space for humor in sci-fi, and that becomes very literal and kind of tedious, honestly. Um, but the human element allows it to be funny and playful. Okay, next question. Um, tell me about a futurist or a forecaster, trend forecaster, who influenced you early in your life, someone who made a prediction that influenced you. That is a good one. And I think I think, you know, my deeper background is so founded in the in the humanities and in literature that I think the first kind of set of, you know, if you can call it a set of forecasts that would have influenced me would have been something like, you know, Aldous Huxley's A Brave New World. Mm-hmm. So he's mm-hmm. not a futurist, this isn't a forecast. Mm-hmm. But here is a detailed portrait founded in his time 
of an of a of an apparent future that feels very credible and very dangerous and very frightening. Um, and I remember reading that as a teenager and being really enthralled by it and and sort of shocked that someone could way back then, and it seemed even longer ago, you know, when I was 14 than it does now because I was so young, could 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 tap into directions of travel that felt still so so real and so prescient in whatever it was, you know, 1994, and still feel deeply prescient today. So I'll go with that. I think I mm-hmm. think that the futurism that's that's impacted me most has been literary. Yes. Great. Uh, you're listening to David Matten here on The Futurists. We're going to take a short break to listen to our generous sponsors, and then we'll come right back. Stay tuned. Provoke Media is proud to sponsor, produce, and support the Futurist podcast. Provoke.fm is a global podcast network and content creation company with the world's leading fintech podcast and radio show, Breaking Banks. And of course, it's spin-off podcasts, Breaking Banks Europe, Breaking Banks Asia Pacific, and the Fintech Five. But we also produce the official Finnovate podcast, Tech on Reg, Emerge Everywhere, the podcast of the Financial Health Network, and Next Gen Banker. For information about all our podcasts, go to provoke.fm or check out Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. Welcome back to The Futurist. It's part two, the second half with David Matten of New World, Same Humans. David, it's been such a pleasure hearing you talk about your methodology and your way of thinking about the future. One of the things we're so interested in this show is helping people understand how they can think better, think more athletically about the future. And to do that, there are different techniques. Uh, Most futurists employ one or two of these techniques. Um, They're either doing trend forecasting, which is similar to what you were describing. And that's where you take a discernible trend today, you know, where we can start to see evidence that there's there's something coalescing, there's some movement, there's some, there seems to be a momentum in a certain direction. And then we can project out into the future how that might start to affect other parts of society or the economy or business or something else. And um, now we all know that you can't do a straight linear projection because that's never the way the future unfolds. There are many trends happening at once and they intersect and collide in interesting ways, sometimes unexpected ways. And so to help us with that problem, there's a second technique. The second technique is scenario planning. And scenario planning is almost like the inverse of trend forecasting. So we're trend forecasting, we're trying to project out a current trend to some point in the future. With scenario planning, what we do is we envision a scenario in the future and we work our way back. We say, okay, what will the key indicators be? What are the necessary preconditions for that scenario to come to pass? And it was interesting to me that you mentioned Brave New World right before the break, because storytellers and science fiction authors in general are the people who are the best at helping us conjure up those scenarios. Now, this is sort of a surprise or contentious point, I suppose, to some folks, because um, there's a lot of science that informs scenario planning. And the people who do it as professional futurists or professional forecasters, they're very rigorous and they try to add mathematics uh, and other models to make that more rigorous, more accurate. But the reality is scenario planning is storytelling. At some point, you're talking about an imaginative process uh, where we're, you know, we're, we're trying to envision how the world might be in the future. And we try to think through all the different aspects of that and then work our way back. And that is a kind of storytelling. Now, your background 
your inspiration is all literary. In other words, you're inspired by storytellers, though in a way you are doing trend forecasting. So you're kind of a blend of the two things. At what point does trend forecasting become scenario planning? At what point do those two different methodologies converge for you? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting question and, and a very rich seam of thinking. And I was actually in a randomly enough having having a very similar conversation this morning with with a client. I think the kind of trend thinking I do mm-hmm. is essentially a form of storytelling too. I and I yes. and I think you know that there can be a sense that that sort of diminishes, or, or some people might hear that as diminishing you know, the kind of trends that I deal in, but quite the contrary. I mean, humans think in stories. Stories yeah. are essentially how we make sense of the world. And what we're trying to do, or what I'm trying to do when I'm looking out to the world in this structured way, is identify stories that are true, that help us make sense of, as I say, this apparent chaos going on out there. And the way, you know, one powerful way to do that is to see this change, see this fast-changing world through the lens of eternal human themes, eternal human values and impulses and needs. And then we're trying to draw a story out of that, a story that makes sense to we humans, that gives us indications of of a line of travel, of where something is heading. So these trends are a form of storytelling, sure. And I agree with you. I think scenario planning is a form of storytelling, a form of narrative too. Um, And and my, my, my broader overarching thought about that is in the end, stories are inescapable for us. All our thinking about the future in the end has to be storytelling. That is how we make sense of the world around us. Um, And, you know, you can go, and I've written in the newsletter about, for example, you know, James Daytor's Four Futures framework, where he says, all our thinking about the future in the end is a version of one of four stories, you know, collapse, discipline, transformation, or continuity. When we think about the future and what it's going to be like, we inevitably end up thinking one of those four big stories, some version of one of those four big stories. And I think there's a there's a great deal of truth in that. Um, mm. So yeah, you know, it's like here in Hollywood, futurism are relate intimately related. Here in Hollywood, they say there's only eight different plots, um, and we just dress them up with different characters and costumes and worlds and so forth. You know, in the design world, um, they talk about sense-making, and sense-making is the process that humans go through to take all the sensory inputs and start to put some logical order around it. Um, My own take on that is that um, life doesn't make sense. You know, everyone starts the day with a plan. Everybody walks out the door of their home and the the front door with a notion of what they're going to try to accomplish that day. And then life hits them in the face and we're in reaction mode the rest of the day. And, um, and it doesn't make any sense when you're in reaction mode, you're just reacting to incoming things. You can't predict what's happening. And it really isn't until you return home that night and you're sitting down for dinner and you say, let me tell you what happened today, that you can start to re construct the day's events. You recapitulate those events in a sequence of thoughts where we leave out the things that were not relevant or the confusing stuff. And we start to order our day's events in, in a, a, frankly, a linear narrative, a story. And that's how we construct sense. That's how we make sense out of this crazy chaotic world where we're always in reaction mode. Uh, to me, that's how it, it seems for us when we're 
faced with a, a technology industry that is so out of control, so chaotic, so competitive. It's constantly generating new stuff. And, and one of the big problems is discerning uh, signal from noise. You know, there's a lot of new announcements every week. Um, and we have to, you and I both have to sort through them to try to un understand what's important. How do you do that? How do you determine which of the many different narrative threads you're going to follow for your newsletter? How do you choose what's important? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a combination of, in practice, it's a combination of things. You know, I mean, the newsletter tends to gravitate towards a series of big established themes that we all probably agree already are important. You know, you can talk about the generative AI wave, you can talk about global heating and its implications, you can talk about demographic change. But yeah, again, in terms of looking out there and trying to see exactly the signal from the noise. You know, you're looking for cluster, or I certainly am looking for clusters of innovations or changes or emerging technologies that show signs of tapping into some deep human need in a new way. And what mm -hmm. you're, and this goes to the storytelling point, you know, what you're really doing is saying exactly as you just said, you know, there's all these technologies emerging. It's chaotic. It's, it's completely unpredictable. It's out of control. No one has, you know, Silicon Valley does not have control of these no. technologies and their implications. It's out of our control. We've built this system of systems that's totally out of our control. Um, Let's bring the big human story about, for example, status and the eternal quest for status, which is just this ongoing part of our nature that you can see mm -hmm. all through our history. Let's bring, for example, that story to some of these emerging technologies and just test it out. You know what? OK, you know, what could what could generative AI mean for for status and status expression, what could the metaverse and virtual worlds, and this is a very fruitful question, actually, this yeah, one means for status and status expression. Yeah. And you're, you're looking for that kind of chime. You know, you don't see it so much with generative AI when it comes to status. You do start to see powerful signals of new forms of status expression, new forms of this age-old behavior in the yeah. metaverse, in, in virtual worlds. And then you're like, yeah. aha, okay, we should investigate that more. We should think we should think about where that's leading. We should look for more examples of that because this is a fruitful direction. And really what you're doing is you're saying, there's this technology out there. It's totally unknown. It's amorphous. It's chaotic. What people will do at scale, millions, billions of people, is they'll bring their age-old human stories to it. And mm -hmm. one of the stories they will bring is status. And if there's yeah. some kind of rhyme there, they'll pursue that rhyme. So this is a fruitful avenue of inquiry. It's a fascinating concept. So as you're speaking, I'm thinking of a number of things. You know, for instance, the great 15-year boom in social media that we've all been living through, it's it's really hard to describe like what's the motivation, what's the economic purpose of social media. People say, well, it's communication and connection and shared knowledge and shared learning. That may be true, but there's no doubt in my mind, David, that what you just said about the quest for status is, is a primary driver. Like that is why people spend so much time on social media and they're looking for the likes and the upvotes and the shares and the links and the call outs and the callbacks and so forth. So that is a huge driver. But then when you look at, say, um, you know, mid journey uh, or the other generative AI image uh, applications, when those were about generating, you know, um, artwork. Okay. They were used by millions of people, but they weren't used by tens of millions of people. And then Lenza came along and made it extremely easy for people to upload their selfies 
and generate sort of optimized uh, personal profile pictures, boom, overnight, your social media flood feed was flooded with images from people who, were, who had never experimented with these systems and would never consider themselves an artist, but they all know how to take a selfie and they all want to look good. And so suddenly people were very proud to share their AI-generated selfies uh, on social media. That just happened in the last month or so. Uh, and, you know, look at Elon Musk's quixotic quest to take over Twitter and control it and wrangle it. it, it this is, yes, he's a troll, but he's obviously also driven by status. So so this notion of status as a driver, um, a human value or human need that drives behavior and drives how we use these technologies, how we apply these tools, that's a really profound insight. Like there's, we could talk all afternoon about that idea. Oh, for sure. I mean, we, you know, we could write, we could write tomes, we could write books mm -hmm. about the way status drives so much behavior in affluent societies. You know, when you get as when you get a collective of people, and their 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 most basic human needs are on the whole met. You know, they're lucky people like us, and they live in affluent societies. It's status and the the status quest that rises to the surface and that fuels so much certainly so much consumer behavior mm -hmm. you know even what, crypto you know, and nfts yeah. to me uh, there's a yeah. huge amount of status there as well you know, oh you sure know, like you know what are yeah what are those board you know, the, the, the board apes you know on your twitter profile and the you know the um the, the nft pair of um artifact sneakers and all of this yeah. is this is status display and it's it's the same human impulse that you know built the pyramids uh at that's why work. people want a ralph lauren polo on, right uh, you know logo on their shirt or or, or a nike swoosh actually nike's metaverse now is called dot swoosh they're actually getting into the metaverse yeah so, so now yeah. let's talk a little bit about the metaverse we've had a number of people on the show including some of the people who are the original developers of technologies for the metaverse um but we haven't gotten into this notion of of status in virtual worlds and I think that's quite interesting. We can actually expand that and talk about other human needs as well. But let's carry on with the status inside the metaverse. Maybe that's more, maybe that hasn't been properly tapped yet. You know, people are trying to own land. They're speculating in land and, you know, virtual land and decentralized and, and sandbox. Um, people are trying to develop games and there's some measure of speculative investment involved there. Some call games uh, a Ponzi scheme, the crypto games or the NFT games, a Ponzi scheme. That may be the case. Um, but I don't think anyone's talked about status inside of the metaverse. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, I think it's it's huge. Uh, I, I mean, I've spoken an awful lot uh, uh, about the metaverse this year. You know, clients are obsessed with it. Um, there's been a huge amount of hype. And then there's the backlash and the skepticism. And I understand that. Um, again, you know, what I tell clients and when I'm speaking, what I tell audiences is, See this emerging technology through the lens of fundamental human needs. These worlds, these new virtual worlds will become domains where people quest after the same old fundamental human needs that they quest after in, in the world out there, in real life, as we you know used to call it, whatever. Uh, and status is one of the primary drivers of of consumer behavior of human behavior in affluent societies and we're going to see that play out in these virtual worlds too when you have work when you have spaces where hundreds or thousands or millions of people gather one of the big things those people want to do is signal to others uh, you know there is something special about me 
I am enlightened. I'm creative. I am unique. Look at my T-shirt. Have you, you know, it's different to the other T-shirts and it, it displays my sensibility. You know, I'm, I'm a more creative soul. I'm this, I'm that. Uh, and yeah, you clearly see that. I mean, ar- artifact, for, for those out there who haven't, who didn't follow their story, you know, across the last couple of years, little US creative agency who make virtual pairs of sneakers you know these sneakers these trainers do not exist they're just digital objects they sell them as nfts they put them on sale they did like three million dollars worth of virtual sneakers in seven minutes and then at the end of 2021 i think it is they were acquired by nike why are nike acquiring artifact nike make real trainers that actually exist why are they buying this creative agency that makes digital sneakers it goes back to something you mentioned before because nike understand that fundamentally the business they are in is the status business nike are in the status business you don't buy a pair of nikes because you really need a pair of shoes because you can buy a far cheaper pair of shoes you don't even buy nikes because you need a great pair of shoes and buy a great pair of shoes far cheaper it's (laughs) a tiny little story it also goes back to the storytelling it's a tiny little story that you're telling yourself and you're telling the world about who you are it's a tiny little bit of self-expression of status display and nike understand that very clearly their history of their marketing shows they understand that very clearly you Um, you know it's interesting david what you're telling me about we're talking about that really you know the the driver behind fashion is there's a paradox. People want to show that they're unique and individual, and they also want to show that they belong, but they belong to a special class, right? But this idea that we're, we're kind of torn between the two things. We want to belong to a group, but we want to be different within that group. You could say, arguably, that's what Yuga Labs has cashed in on with the Board Ape Club, where they're selling, you know, what is it, a picture of an ape. It's just a generative image of a gorilla cartoon for $100,000 a piece. Uh, But it's more than just a picture. It's not just a profile picture that you can post on Twitter and show your friends that you're part of that group. It's now emerging as a platform, and it's actually kind of an extraordinary story. The the crypto meltdown isn't helping the story, unfortunately, but I find this company, Yuga Labs, to be one of the most interesting because they're turning their nfts into a platform for a community so you're not just buying the artifact you know the buying the the image to show off on social media of course people are doing that but you're also an investor in a community once you buy in you're going to do your best to build on that community and they're using uh creative commons uh to enable people to tell stories and to build narratives uh fictional narratives including you know comic books and movie scripts and movie ideas and so forth um on top of the Board Ape Club. And people are doing this. Uh, there are members who are doing it for free. It's like fan fiction. They're also creating a real world community where you use the NFT to get token gated access uh, to activities, to premium events, to hospitality and so forth. So at gatherings where there's likely to be members of the Board Ape Yacht Club, they'll create a Board Ape Yacht Club like area or a special hospitality zone. Uh, so they're trying to pay off that notion and give the audience uh, a chance to do more than just be a mindless consumer, but be an active participant in the creation of a community of like-minded people who want to signal to the rest of the world. They, they're using that signaling technology. We're part of this group and we share these values. Now, for my mind, this is this pretends great opportunity for marketers and it's no surprise that Nike has gotten into us. By the way, since they acquired uh, Artifact, Nike's done $200 million of sales of NFTs. People don't realize that. They're by far the leader in terms of big brands in the NFT space, but they're not the only one. Gucci, Prada, a number of other major fashion labels have also gotten into the NFT game. These are companies that sell products for thousands of dollars, luxury goods, 
but now they're selling NFTs for more than the price of a Gucci bag. You can you can buy the the NFT, the virtual version of the bag, for more than the more than the price of the of the real world item. And of course, now we can make, you know, people would typically hearing this, they'd say, well, that's just like the Dutch tulip, uh, you know, bubble and so forth, the manias in the past. And, and there may be an element of that in the crypto world. But I think what you're describing is that people have this urge, this need, and they're going to scratch that itch one way or the other. New technology that affords this ability to do it and then telecast it across the whole world. That's very powerful. But that's not the only human need. Uh, this idea of status. There's other human needs, and we should talk a bit about those. You mentioned in your newsletter recently that the country of Tuvalu wants to recreate itself in the metaverse. And to me, this is about survival. This is about ensuring uh, cultural continuity, even if the oceans rise and global warming and global climate change cause Tuvalu to sink beneath the ocean. They're going to seek, seek to recreate that and ensure that their culture can survive in a virtual world. So talk about some other emotional drivers or values, core values beyond status. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that the, the Tuvalu example is really intriguing. And, you know, it's also a little sad because this is a country more than a little sad is very sad. It's tragic because this is a country saying we've begged and begged and begged for people to pay attention to the climate crisis and what it's going to do to us. It's go it's literally going to wipe us off the map. You know, we're a tiny island with rising sea levels will obliterate this country. And I think that is a sort of desperate play to ride a technology trend that's getting a lot of attention or a an emerging technology that's getting a lot of attention uh, in the hope people will sit up and take notice. I mean, you know, I don't think that instantiating Tuvalu in the metaverse can in any way uh, ameliorate the obliteration of the real Tuvalu. And I don't think the people there think that either. I think they're, they're very understandably trying to get some attention for themselves in that way. But yeah, I mean, the, the in, ter in terms of the broader picture, these virtual worlds will become domains where we see the complex interweaving sort of tapestry of, 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 of humans questing after their fundamental needs. I mean, dare I say it, you know, we, we know the fundamental need that drove a lot of the early days of internet, uh, 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 internet innovation, right? Sex. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see that in the metaverse too. There's, there's no two ways about it. This will become places where people try to, these worlds will become places where people try to hook up with one another. And mm -hmm. uh, that that's all going to play out. Um, you know, social connection is a it, it, people wanting to be together in meaningful ways. <laughs> It is a genuine one. Of course, value and transaction. These will become spaces where people are, are buying and selling and they'll become new domains of, you know, a really interesting one for the metaverse is self-expression. I mean, we're in the middle of a, a cultural moment now with a conversation around the individual's um, right and ability to define who they are and the way the world sees them in, in virtual worlds. Uh, that ability to construct yourself and construct the version of you that 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 aligns with your inner feelings about who you are and present that to the world that's transformed in the metaverse you you literally can construct a self you can construct an avatar we're going to see hugely so again you know that that is an, another example of where you see an emerging technology and a fundamental human need rhyme as it were in in that in that compelling way, you know, self-expression, the construction of the self and the, the need to transmit your own inner identity to the outside world, that's a deep, eternal 
human impulse. It's always been part of who we are. Virtual worlds will unlock new ways to do that. And so we'll see that story develop. And for any innovator or any brand who wants to think about what does the metaverse mean for us? What kind of human behaviors will we see in it? That would be a really interesting fundamental human need to pursue and think about in that context. It's a really powerful driver of behavior in digital environments. Um, but however, it runs it runs headlong into um, a collision with broadcast media. And the habit in broadcast media is that you're entirely passive. You simply sit there and consume uh, the TV talks at you, the radio talks at you, and you listen, you absorb it. Uh, and that's worked very well for brand marketers for 70 years or 100 years if you take radio into account. Uh, however, in these worlds we're talking about, these new digital domains, the the metaverse, um, they're going to be participatory in a way where people need a meaningful way to participate beyond consumerism, uh, where they need to create something and share something and get validation for what they've created. And I think this is a misstep that we can see that Meta and other companies that were early players in the metaverse, they completely blew it. They completely missed the opportunity um, to make these creative environments where people had the ability to generate and share and maybe even sell or transact around their digital creations. The irony to me here is that this is perfectly obvious if you look at Second Life, right? The, the, the enduring virtue of Second Life is that the people there are highly creative, highly participatory, and they transact uh, every single day. There are a million people who are using Second Life. So you don't have to look far for an example of a metaverse that does work. It's quirky, it's strange, but that's how people are. Um, this, notion, this notion that like Meta shared with Horizons, um, that you know there'll be this sort of canned metaverse, a prepared metaverse, kind of like Disneyland, you know, or a shopping mall or a corporate office park uh, where everything's groomed out and prepared for you. And all you can do is modify an avatar with a preset group of parameters. That's not self-expression. That's too controlled. Um, I don't think that's going to cause people to come back. And the proof is in the pudding because most people who check out Horizons World don't come back. Uh, well, that's a fascinating thought. So you're typing into a deep well of, of uh, human needs. Can you prognosticate for us a little bit? Will you give us a forecast of what you envision for the next decade? What do you think is going to transpire with all the new technologies that are emerging? I think we're at the beginning of a decade-long wave of innovation when it comes to generative AI and the collision there between AI, machine intelligence, and human creativity is endlessly fascinating to me. And I think we'll see human creativity amplified in all kinds of incredible ways. I think I think counter to what most people think, we'll see human creativity and creative people become even more valuable and powerful than before, um, because it takes a high degree of creativity to get the best from these tools. Uh, I think we'll see the emergence of virtual worlds where millions or hundreds of millions, maybe even billions of people gather and transact and hang out and and express themselves. Um, you know, and I endlessly say to clients and audiences, don't don't get hung up on the current manifestations. Don't look at, you know, Meta's version of the metaverse or any particular version of the metaverse and think, oh hey, that doesn't work. So this whole thing is hype. You know, I'm deeply skeptical. There's nothing here. It's not the current manifestations that are important, or certainly they're not important 
when we're trying to think in, in this structured way about the future, it's the fact that there's an emerging technology here that unlocks new ways to serve fundamental human needs. And I also think that, you know, we're on the verge of some really interesting developments when it comes to robotics. And when you start to marry these large language models that understand context and, and understand meaning, so to speak, though that gets very philosophical, when you can marry those with with robots you, you you start to verge on and google are doing some really interesting work their everyday robots division is doing some really interesting work on this you start to verge on robots that can be genuinely useful in ordinary human physical spaces you know you start to verge on a robot where you can say oh hey ro you know hey i've just spilled my coffee sort it out and the robot will understand that and act appropriately. We're still some way off that because it's, I mean, that's a whole other podcast. You know, we've seen incredible <laughs> advances in digital and in the world of bits, as they say, but not, not so much in the world of atoms. We're not perhaps where we expected to be in the world of atoms. We still don't have that household helper robot that just loads the yeah. dishwasher and makes you a cup of coffee. But perhaps we're closer now in a meaningful way. And right. that to me is extremely interesting as well. I, th I think that's a whole new way that the technologies that have transformed our lives across the last 20 years have been digital on the whole. We may be on the verge of a wave of physical, of hardware, of atom technologies that really change day-to-day -day life. And that will be, that will raise a whole new set of really interesting issues and challenges. Right on. Well, thank you very much, David Matten, the creator of New World, Same Humans newsletter, which I've been reading and I've enjoyed immensely, and I recommend everyone who's listening. Thank you, David, for joining us on this show, the podcast. Um, and uh, our, my co-host, uh, my globe-traveling uh, co-host, Brett King, will be back next week uh, to join us for another episode of The Futurists. And in the meantime, I want to give a shout out of thanks uh, to Kevin Hershon and, and Lisbeth. Uh, you are our producers. You've done a fabulous job. And the whole team at Provoke Media who supports us in the production and distribution of this show. And for those who are listening, thank you very kindly for the folks who've been sending suggestions and uh, thoughts to us. They're very constructive. And we welcome that feedback. And if you're listening and you find the show useful, please do give us a five-star review. That helps other people discover it. You can do that on Apple or on Spotify or wherever you find podcasts. And in the meantime, uh, we'll continue to prepare more shows. We've got great new hosts, uh, great new stars coming and joining us uh, in the very near future. So it's been a fun first year for us, and we're really thrilled about what comes in 2023. And we appreciate everybody who's been joining us on this journey. We will see you in the future. Well, that's it for The Futurists this week. If you like the show, we sure hope you did. Please subscribe and share it with the people in your community. And don't forget to leave us a five-star review. That really helps other people find the show. And you can ping us anytime on Instagram and Twitter at, at futuristpodcast for the folks that you'd like to see on the show or the questions that you'd like us to ask. Thanks for joining. And as always, we'll see you in the future.